Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50 and continuing to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, before we look at this word of the Lord together, let's go to the Lord of the Word. Let's ask Him for His help and His blessing. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to stand here in the midst of your presence and to be under this word that was just spoken. Amazing promises, amazing truths, truths that our very lives are founded on. The very meaning and purpose of life itself hangs on. Father, we need to hear these words, not merely with the black and the white, but we need to hear them with the heart. We, we need your Holy Spirit, that, that great hound of heaven, who so faithfully comes in proportion to the reading and the preaching of your word in the midst of worship and communicates the realities of this truth experientially to the lives of your people. You, Holy Spirit, who come so faithfully, we need you. We need your grace. We need your power. We need you to illumine this word. We need you to bring it out into the light so that we can behold it and see it for what it is, God's very living word for us. 
So as we now take a few minutes to consider this word, O Lord, we pray that you would be the preacher. Pray that it would be your words that would be heard. And as much as is even possible, blend the preacher into the background. And and Father, let all of the distractions be quelled so that we can have our hearts and minds stayed on you. Come and meet us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when you look back on life, there's usually things you can find that you're grateful for. There's plenty of things that you wish did not happened. There's plenty of things that you wished you could have never experienced. But there's also plenty of things that you look back on and you can say, Lord, I'm thankful for that. I was reminded this week in speaking to someone actually within this congregation of something I'm very thankful for because of my own family. My mom got my sister and I involved in a ministry known as the Christian Food Mission in Laurel, Mississippi many years ago. For those of you who are aware of Meals on Wheels, it was sort of in a similar structure and organization. It was for those within our community who were struggling financially, who were the poor of our community and needed help and often didn't know where that help was going to come from. There was an evaluation that would be done when someone applied and then, lo and behold, you would be received and then you would be added to someone's driving route as you dropped off lunches on particular days of the week. And we had a staple Wednesday morning route that my family did for many, many years. You'd get new people that would come onto your route. You'd get old people that would leave your route. But I remember one lady that was sparked in my memory this week in conversation with someone. She was new to our route. And she had been waiting that morning by the window, waiting for us to show up to give her her meal. We had this little styrofoam plate with roast beef and a little gravy on it and some peas and carrots and maybe it's a yeast roll. And when we showed up at her door, she had this amazing smile on her face. She'd lost her husband a couple of years earlier. Things had gotten very tight for her. No children in the picture, no one to take care of her. She had this tiny little social security check that she was receiving. She needed extra help, and this was a part of the Lord's provision in her life. She was waiting on it. We stood there in the door with her, hearing a little bit about her story, as we often did, actually prayed for her before we, before we left. And I'll never forget what she said. Final words as we were leaving. With that same smile that never left her face while we were there, she said to us, it's amazing what a little hope will do. It's amazing what a little hope will do. You've probably been in a situation like that. Or you've been discouraged. You've been in despair. You've been despondent. You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And if it is a light, you assume it's an oncoming train at this point. We've been there before, many of us. And in something, 
like a shard of light, cracks into our otherwise dark life, and it gives us a reason to hope again. Paul, in this passage, is giving the church at Corinth a reason to hope. He's giving them a reason to hope. But it's not just a little bit of hope. It's, it's a huge hope. It's, it's an amazing hope. It's a hope that encompasses heaven and earth. A hope that knows no bounds. A hope that is tied to the very eternality and infiniteness of God himself. Because it's a hope that comes out of the very character and the mission of God. And he says he speaks to this in this church at Corinth, this church with a, a lot of issues, a lot of issues. We read some terrible things through the pages of 1 Corinthians. I've told you before, I read this book when I'm discouraged about the church. I read this book when I'm discouraged about the church, and I get to, you know, chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians. Well, we don't have that. Well, that's good. You know, that's good. I get a little bit of encouragement. Paul has clearly been discouraged in his communication with the church at Corinth, but notice his kindness in here. Therefore, my beloved brothers, that kind? He's describing them as those he's yoked to, the family of God. He has words of affections here for them. He wants them to lean into, to know, to experience, to walk in the hope of the resurrection. But there's a big problem. I mean, the text actually begins with the problem. And it's right there in verse 50 for us. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can the perishable put on the imperishable. And he's right about that. The perishing can't put on the imperishing. And, and the flesh and blood, at least the flesh and blood that I've come in contact with in this world, tends to, in one direction, and it tends in the perishing direction. He says, this kind of person, the kind of person that we are, quite frankly, this kind of person doesn't inherit the kingdom of God. This kind of person doesn't put on the imperishable because they are cloaked in the, the, the very obviously so perishing body that we are in, this flesh and blood. Now, when Paul speaks of flesh and blood here, as he speaks about the physical world, he's speaking about what's wrong with it. He's speaking about its brokenness. He's speaking about its decay. He's speaking, in other words, about sin. You know, sin is the corrosion of our culture and our life and our world. That's what it is. It's the thing that has created the decay. It's the reason when you got up this morning your back was hurting. It's the reason yesterday I was picking out weeds in my flower bed. It's the reason your car broke down. It's the reason you lost your job. It's the reason you have relational strife in your marriage. Sin. It's the decay. It's the brokenness. It's the reason that some of you are really tired right now. Not feeling very well. You're hoping this will be a short one. Good luck. Sin. Decay. Death. It's... It's all around us. And you remember the narrative. It came directly because of our rebellion against God. You know Genesis chapter 3. If you don't know Genesis chapter 3, let me remind you. Genesis 3 is when Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden that God had told them not to eat. And if they ate of it, what would happen? They would die. They would surely die. And immediately upon eating it, what do they find out? That they're not clothed. 
Something of death happened, relational death. A shame and a guilt begin to flood their hearts and their minds. Can you imagine what it would feel like to live life without shame or guilt? It's pretty core to my human experience. I've felt guilt all my life at various levels because of my sin. Adam and Eve experienced it, and as soon as they experienced it, it became like a cancer that spread throughout all of the world. Every living thing was touched with it. And, and what Paul is saying here in this passage is that you can't get into the kingdom of God looking like you and me. He's being, he's being deathly truthful to us right here. You can't get into the kingdom of God looking like you and me. I told the first service I was reminded of an experience, actually when I said that phrase, when I was hiking as a high school student with a bunch of friends. We were in the Ozark Mountains, having a grand old time, had gotten into our trip, gotten into base camp, set up our tents, gone out for our first day of hiking, and one of our members got hurt, the kind of hurt that requires stitches. And, and this blood running all over the leg, we realized we've got to hike back in so many miles and get to this little small town and hope they have something, aftercare, hospital, something that will help us. And we go in, we find an emergency room, get stitched up. It's now late in the day and we're thinking, we don't really want to hike back out there. I mean, this is a nice little town. Let's, let's, get a, let's get a hotel room for the night. We'll start this hiking thing over tomorrow and let's get a great meal. Let's eat good. And sure enough, we're walking you know, down the streets of the square and we find this marvelous Italian restaurant. Looking in the door, you know, looking in the, through the windows, oh, man, white tablecloths, candle lit, all these nicely dressed waiters and waitresses serving these amazing looking lasagnas. And we thought, this will be great. We need the carbohydrates anyway because of the hike, you know, to be able to get in. This will be good for us. This will be, be good. We're going to go in. And then, you know, it dawns on us. We look like we've come out of the woods. Our clothes are dirty. We're dingy. We stink. We've been in and out of the creek. We've still got blood stains from trying to help a friend. There's no way we're getting in there looking like this. You know the feeling of walking into the restaurant that you're way underdressed for. It's a bad feeling. The Apostle Paul says here, we're not getting into the kingdom of God. You're not sitting with the white tablecloths with Jesus at that table if you're in the stuff we're made of. The perishing kind of stuff. And so the question becomes, how are we going to change? What's going to give? Because the scripture is full of promises. And in fact, Paul's purpose in writing this very passage is to encourage us that change will happen. And so he tells us, behold, I tell you a mystery. And indeed, we have mysteries that we will not even have the time to plumb the depths of this day. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. We will all be changed. All of those who are in Christ Jesus will undergo a radical transformation. But it is something that will take place. It's in the future tense. 
Some of you were hoping it would happen the moment you were converted. I was too. I remember hoping that I would, when I became ordained as a minister, that a little halo would appear. And, and I'd have the face of glowing like Moses and that all of you would have to walk around with veils just to be able to interact with me. It didn't happen. Just ask Christy. It didn't happen. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us the change has already begun. The change has already begun. That's why we read the passage that we read earlier in the service in the same chapter that we're in in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles or you could even turn back in your bulletin to verses 20 to 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, and we read this word from the Apostle Paul. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, that is Adam, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul is describing here a resurrection that's already happened. In the passage we're in, he's talking about a resurrection that's going to happen. A resurrection that's going to happen in the future. But he wants us to know there's already a resurrection that's happened, and it's happened in Christ. And he refers to Christ here as the first fruits. Now, what does it mean to be the first fruits? All you farmers and gardeners out there know exactly what it means to be the first fruits. You know what it is like to labor hard, to plant, to watch grow, and then to cut your first squash. To cut your first tomato. And then you know, when you normally cut your first squash or your first tomato, it's hardly enough to eat. But it's the first. It's the first of the fruits. It's, it's a sign of something. It's a picture of what is to come. It's a sign that the harvest has begun, but just a little. It's just beginning. And so it holds out for you a promise. That as I've received the first fruits... And I only got two little pods of okra that one day, here soon, I'll have more okra than I can eat. That's what Jesus' resurrection is. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the resurrection. It's the beginning and the participation in the harvest. But the fullness has not yet come. He is the start of it. And what that means is that the future has actually invaded the present. The future has actually invaded the present through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? Well, the resurrection, is it, is it future or is it present or is it past? Well, it's a trick question, so don't exactly answer it. But in the fullest sense of the word, it's future. It's future. It's coming. If you come up after the service this morning and you tell me you've been resurrected from the dead, we should talk. I'd love to have a conversation with you. I might be a little weirded out, but I would love to have a conversation with you about that. The resurrection is future, right? It's future. But Jesus was resurrected in the past. So it means that the future harvest began 2,000 years ago. That we're right now experiencing the invasion of the future into the present. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And it's breaking in through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are all sorts of resurrections 
that happen as the kingdom begins to break in. We're speaking here of the physical resurrection, and that's where we're going to go throughout the course of this message. But think of the other resurrections that have happened. You remember the day of your conversion. Some of you do. What is a conversion? It's a resurrection. It's a movement from death into life. You had no power to generate yourself, to bring about your own life spiritually. It was God who had to act and work upon you by the power of His Holy Spirit. Through the message of the gospel, through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, it brought you to life. Some of you can look back on your lives and you can say, you know that sin I used to battle with? And you can actually say it in that tone, with that past tense connected to it. It's not like it used to be. I used to struggle so much with that. It occasionally still pops up its head, but it's not like it used to be. I've begun to experience growth, resurrection power. Because the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ dwells within me. It's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. As we grow in Christ's likeness and in godliness, there are many resurrections happening. Do you see, the resurrection, when Jesus was, was brought back from the dead, there was, as the curse was spread like a plague throughout all of the earth, when the resurrection of the dead happened, a blessing began to be spread throughout all of the world. Jesus, the vine, as he describes himself, begins to grow. And this vine is going to encompass the entirety of the cosmos. All of heaven and earth will ultimately brought into submission to this vine, this Lord Jesus Christ. But you know what's happening. Just as the vine is growing, what else is happening? Weeds. Everywhere. Side by side with the vine. We're in the midst of the old world that's still broken, but we're a part of a new kingdom. A new world that's afoot. And it's growing, it's spreading. At the, at the point that Jesus raised from the dead, you know what happened? Jesus claimed a little beachhead on the earth. He claimed a little spot from which the fort of the gospel was built and of which the kingdom can be advanced by his people through the power of the Spirit and the gospel. And what has been happening since that resurrection from the dead has been a spreading of the gloriousness of the gospel. Resurrections from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. This is a vine that will encompass every square inch of the human domain. And this is part of what the Apostle Paul wants us to know is that there is simultaneously in life the reality of brokenness and death that still exists and a resurrection that ultimately will win. And he wants us to see that. He wants us to not be surprised when our life sometimes feels like death. Because there's still a lot of death in the world. A lot of destruction in the world. But he says we shouldn't be surprised when we begin to experience some life. Some new life in Christ. Little resurrections, glimpses of the new creation. As they begin to spread as well. Why? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has begun the reverse of the curse. Now when we begin to think about this kind of change, especially the eschatological change, the change at the end of time, when Jesus returns in those last days, what's it going to be like? What's it going to be like? What's going to happen? Well, let's pay attention to the text. Let's see what the, the text actually tells us. If you look in verse 52, it says that when Jesus comes back, our change will happen in a moment. 
in the twinkling of an eye. The change that we will undergo will be transformational and it will be instantaneous. It'll be instantaneous. The little word for moment here is the word atomos from where we get the word atom. It means little, small. The metaphor of the twinkling of an eye, it's a blinking. It's a blinking. In, in that amount of time, you'll be changed. You'll be brought forth into glory. But notice the second thing about the nature of this change. This change is not just instantaneous, it's comprehensive. Look at the way he describes it. Paul says this perishable body will put on the imperishable. There will be a complete transformation. There won't just simply be a, a part replaced here and a piece replaced there and a a little tweak and a little grease added here or there. No, no, no. This is a total overhaul. This is a remake. This is better than any complete makeover you've ever seen. This is top to bottom, inside out. Everything about who it is that we are is renewed. It is glorified. It is absolutely comprehensive. But there's a final thing he tells us. This change will be instantaneous. It will be comprehensive. But he says it will be everlasting. He says the newly transformed body will be imperishable. It'll be imperishable. There's no risk that this body will fall back into disrepair. There's no risk that it'll end up like you and me today, broken down, sad, hurting, discouraged. No, no, no. This body will be perfect. It'll be flawless It'll be righteous. It'll be, it'll be physically complete. It'll be spiritually full of God's grace and His holiness. It will be the human form of likes which we've never glimpsed. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul, when he describes this transformation, this instantaneous, comprehensive, everlasting transformation, that at the end of this section, he borrows words from Isaiah, and he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, why does he do that? Well, he can't help himself, for one. He's just been thinking, as hopefully your mind has been lifted up this morning, to think of what it would be like to have that instantaneous, comprehensive, and everlasting change. Many of our minds, actually, because we are quite cynical, think it'll never happen. It's never going to happen. This, isn't, this is not going to take place. This is pie-in-the-sky stuff. The Bible, the inerrant, infallible Word of God, tells us, it will happen. It promises it to be so. And Paul tells us in this chapter that if it happened for Jesus, you better believe it will happen for those who are in Jesus. Why is that necessarily the case? Because we who are trusting in Christ and have been positionally identified with Him, guess what? We get what Jesus gets. We get what Jesus gets. We get what He won. We get who he is. This is why we're told that when he returns, we will be like him and we will see him even as he is. Now, it's that beauty that, that Paul wants us to behold. But listen, when you think of these words, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? When I have my feet on the ground, on earth, on this day in Middle Tennessee, I think, I see a lot of victory that death has. 
it still seems like it hurts. Still seems like there's a sting that's associated with it. Well, let's, re- let's remember, Paul is talking about that day. The context of this passage is the future harvest, but, but what is happening? Well, the future, let's remember, is breaking into the present. It's breaking into the present. So something of the spirit of that future is, should be presently lodged away in the hearts of believers. And Paul tells us in this passage that the sting, the painfulness of this death comes from sin. And the power of that sin comes from the law. This is where that guilt thing came from. You know what it is like as the Apostle Paul writes about it in the book of Romans. You you read the law of God and you think, yeah, I messed up all of that. Yeah, I didn't do that. And, And even... The law can, as Paul describes it, stir up within you a kind of sinfulness because your heart is wicked. Paul says he read, thou shalt not covet, and all sorts of coveting started showing up in his heart. Ooh, the heart is deceitful, is it not? And desperately wicked, who can even know it? That's exactly what we're learning here in this passage is that there's a darkness that's here in this Heart, and it comes through even the realization of the law and the power of the law working through sin. We've sinned. We've broken God's holy law. And so death comes to us as a sting unless someone removes the stinger. Unless someone removes the stinger. I used to work for Morgan Brothers Millwork in the thriving metropolis of Laurel, Mississippi. All 10 or 15 people that live there. No, it's bigger than that. I was running in their outdoor molding shop for a period of time. It was like, oh, I don't know, in the summers in Mississippi, South Mississippi, there is a difference. Being under a tin roof with the sun beating down, running heavy, hot equipment on the inside. You get the feeling of what we're talking about here? It's a foretaste of Hades itself. It's terrible. The guy next door to us for where we were working raised honeybees. And we would go outside on our work break and we would find the single shade tree and we would eat our lunch out from under the cooker that we were in doing our work. And one day, one of those honeybees came over and made its way in our direction. Now, this is not an uncommon occurrence. It hit me yesterday as a wasp was trying to catch me in my yard. And I thought, oh yeah, I remember this story. And it's perfect to what it is that the Lord is teaching us here. As the honeybee came, we did what any of you would do. We kind of you know, tried not to upset it. Just let it be. We're going to eat. You know, people tell you things like, if you don't bother it, they won't mess with you. It's not true. It's just not true. They will still mess with you. You've got to be on your guard. It'll happen. So one came and lit on one of us. We shoot it away. You know, you make it mad then. I mean, it's sort of darn if you do, darn if you don't, you know. Here he is. He's lighting back and, and will not bother us. I mean, he clearly has a vendetta. I mean, major grievances. I don't know what we did to this honeybee, but he had major grievances against us. Ultimately, my boss, Larry Richardson at the time, got stung by the honeybee. 
got stung right here on his forearm. I remember it well because I'd never seen this before. As you know with honeybees, the stinger can often come out after they sting, especially if it digs into skin. That's exactly what happened here. I'd never seen it before. The stinger came out and it separated from the abdomen of the honeybee. And it was, it was sad and funny all at the same time. The, it wasn't that sad. And the honeybee <laughs> kind of fluttered over and then just died. It died because it, it stung and it lost its stinger and the stinger separated the abdomen. And well, the story is told. You understand, you can't have a separated abdomen and do well in life. I just... <laughs> Right? I mean, that's just, that's common knowledge. I mean, that, it didn't go well for him. It didn't go well for him in life. And the realization is, um, I remember Larry, Larry saying, oh, Larry, I wished, I wished Larry was here. L- Larry, Larry said, he ain't gonna bother us anymore. <laughs> now, you, you understand the connection. When, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, He perfectly obeyed the law. We're told that the power of sin is through the law. But if you've perfectly obeyed the law, it means that you're sinless. You're guiltless. And death had never tried to take someone without sin. Death had never tried to take someone without sin before. But as soon as it tried, it lost its sting. It was utterly removed. And what was its weapon that it had lorded over the generations was now brought to nothing. In one fell swoop, when death thought that it had Jesus in that grave and he broke forth from the grave on the third day. It's as if the honeybee who had landed dead on the ground, death landed dead on the ground. And in that moment, we, those who are in faith, trusting in Christ, receive the same reality. Don't you see? There's been generations of Christians who have come and gone, who have died, but when they have passed through death, they braced for a sting and they passed through a veil. They braced for a sting, they passed through a veil. They went to what they thought could be a horrible end and they passed into ultimate pleasure and glory. It's an amazing picture. He says, that's your life. That's your life. Don't don't you see why the Heidelberg Catechism starts out so well? What is your only comfort in death in life? This is our only comfort. That I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, life and death, to Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood. And notice, he has set me free from all the power of the devil. Now listen. Listen. You know one day, you'll know that in a way that there's no way you can conceive of it now. But that will not be more true today than it will be then. It was just as true today as it will be then. And the question of Paul in this passage is, do you live like it? You're eternal. If you're in Christ, you belong to him. Death is but a passing from life unto life. 
unto life. We sometimes speak of life as if we have a short time to live. Really curious when you get to a passage like this. Yeah, he doesn't have long to live. Well, if he's in Christ, he's not going to be cutting it short anytime soon. It's as if the eternal life is so far out there somewhere, it's not even in our purview. It's not even a way that we conceive of ourselves as having an existence beyond the grave. It feels so final still to us. But what is clearly in this passage is that Jesus is saying, listen, this is, this is the truth. This is the reality. You live on after death and actually your soul, made perfect in glory, absolutely righteous, before the very face of Jesus Christ, anticipates coming back with Christ and reuniting to its glorified body and live with Him forevermore. You have loved ones in Christ who have gone before you? Those who have died in the faith, do you have them? You would not believe the joy they're experiencing. The joy that they're experiencing in the presence of the Lord is not worthy to be compared to your happiest moment times ten. It's not worthy. It's not even in the same ballpark. It's not even in the same range of meaning. Their glory and their joy is so immense and their anticipation of Christ's return and their longing to be united with their glorified body as God had designed and to walk before Him as Adam and Eve enjoyed in the cool of the day when all is right. Do You see, that's the story of redemption. That's the story of you're in Christ, you're a part of. That's not your future, that's your now. The same reality of that future is breaking in. And when you perceive it by faith and you walk with it by faith, what you find is you begin to grow from one degree of glory to the next. You begin to experience one degree of joy to the next. And you see the Apostle Paul wants us to really press in here. In conclusion, verse 58, he tells us that there is a life that grows up when we are rooted in the resurrection. There's a life that grows up when we're rooted in the resurrection. I want to give you three things as we go. I want you to see resurrection character. I want you to see resurrection calling. And I want you to see resurrection confidence. That's what I want you to see. I want you to see verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. I love that word therefore because it tells us, right? In conclusion, everything that I've said leads to this point that I want you to hear. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, because He's given you the Spirit who works in you, is taking you in sanctification, becoming more like Christ, because your future resurrection is around the corner, it is sure and it is certain. Here's how you live. Steadfast. And immovable. Now, when I hear those two words, I think commitment and I think conviction. Immovable is the conviction. Is that you are rooted in the truth of the resurrection. You are rooted in the truth of the resurrection. I had a seminary friend. Of course, this is the kind of thing seminary friends do. So I don't necessarily expect this from you. But when I would ask him, how are you doing? He says, I'm doing great. Jesus is raised from the dead. Did you hear? Now he would say it like to remind us seminary students who are like, yeah, right, of course he is. I mean, we took that test last week and I got that answer right. Like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. He's raised from the dead. How are you doing? 
I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Literally, we could say, though it will not wipe away every heart, heartache, every sorrow, every difficulty in this world, we can say, all my problems seem so small now. They seem so small to me. I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to be absolutely glorified in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ forever. Forever. It's amazing. He says, steadfast and immovable, this is the kind of fervent hope of the resurrection that makes us people who stay put and stay forward in the Christian life. Stay put and we move forward in the course of our Christian life. We're steady as we go. It's, it becomes for us, the resurrection becomes for us an anchor. It's an anchor that sinks to the bottom of the ocean floor of our hearts. And instead of being tossed to and fro by various things like a boat on the sea, we've got an anchor called the resurrection that grounds us in the reality of what's more true than what anybody else could tell you. And, it's, and we're stayed on Him. And what comes out of that is an unswerving dedication to Jesus. But the second thing that comes out is a calling, resurrection calling. Look at verse 58. Always abound in the work of the Lord. Always abound in the work of the Lord. On Thursday night, the men gathered at the Franklin Mercantile here in downtown Franklin. It was great to see so many of you there. And we talked about leading in the workplace, following in the workplace, really following Christ in the workplace. And one of the points that we made was the fact that, that all of our work is for the Lord. All of our work is for the Lord. Now you think, okay, Nate, that's not too earth-shattering. Yeah, but you think it's for your boss. And the Bible says otherwise. As, as Paul is speaking in Colossians and in Ephesians, he says to slaves who I can't help but think they probably don't have a wide range of picking what it is they want to do. Not glorified work here. He says, slaves, don't labor unto men as to eye service, so as to please them. Don't labor for the bottom line. Instead, labor as unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. In this passage, he tells us, that very reality, doesn't he? Therefore, brothers, be steadfast and move, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That we work, whatever it is we do, we work as unto the Lord. And what that means is your office cubicle can become a worship space. It means is the, the mowing of your grass can become a worship space. And the folding of your laundry and the taking of that trip can become a place that's rooted in the resurrection. That you know that as you go, as the Great Commission tells us, as you are going, you make disciples for Christ, you make much of Christ, you witness for Christ, you work with an excellence that's befitting of Christ, you confess your sins quickly when you fail at work to so show forth the worthiness of Christ. Everything is about working unto the Lord. And then you know what you do? You do what is right and you let the chips fall where they may. You do what is right and you let the chips fall where they may. God's going to take care of the details. You give Him your all. That's your calling. That's your calling. And then finally, we're given resurrection confidence in this passage. Look at Paul and how he concludes this. He says, in the Lord, your, your labor is not in vain. Oh, it's so good to hear. It's so good to hear. Because we have such a tendency, don't we? I, 
I have such a tendency, I won't impugn you with my sins and struggles. I have such a tendency to look for the fruit through my eyes. And, and if I don't see it, then, oh, despair. The spiritual world is the unseen world. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. It is, it is acting on the truth of God. It is planting the seed. It is watering. And if you don't see growth, knowing that won't go to vain. That is purposeful. That is meaningful. That helps me get out of bed on Monday morning when I don't want to. Because I know what I do today in the Lord, for the work of the Lord, is not simply investing for retirement. It's investing for eternity. For eternity. It's like the old hymn writer used to say, There's only one life, and soon it will pass. Only what's done for Jesus will last. What are you working for? What does it all mean? How are you feeling? Are we having a good day? Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask you for the truth of this resurrection to be more than word, but to be transformation. And I trust that your labors among us today will indeed not be in vain. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.